The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to call your attention today to verses 14 and 15. This is Paul's letter to the local church at Thessalonica, and they are a body of believers that are joined together in the fellowship of the gospel. They're a church that has common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they banded together to promote the primary purpose of the church, and that is the lordship and the glory of Christ. They were together for their sanctification, that is, for their growth for strengthening, and that does not happen without the fellowship of the Lord's church. Now, I want to remind you, and we will discuss this a little bit later, that the church is a body. In 1 Corinthians, Paul compared the church and its members to the human body. And as the human body has separate body parts, so the church has many individual members. And as body parts serve different functions, so members of the church serve different functions in in this body. Now, in the human body, something I've never seen is one part of the body that works totally independent of all the other parts. There are separate parts of our body, but all of these body parts work together for the good functioning of the body. And Paul says this is like the church the membership works together for the whole of the or for the good of the whole church and the chief concern that Paul has here is about fellowship how do you get a diverse group of people people that are very much unlike each other to come together in the worship of one assembly and lose their individuality to work together for this common cause of glorifying Christ oh in this section of the letter Paul instructs the church by speaking of fellowship in the body, what must be done for the good of the body that keeps us focused on that goal of glorifying Christ? Well, our text today is verses 14 and 15, but I'd like for us to back up to verse number 12 to begin the reading, where Paul says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and all men. Now, we notice in verse number 12 that Paul addressed the brethren. Brethren is masculine, but we know that he intends to speak to the entire congregation. That includes men and women. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you do very much reading, whether newspapers or even in modern Bible versions, you'll find that that people want to substitute the masculine words that stand for the whole, and they want to change those, as contemporary authors and commentators do, so that we see words like she substituted for he in the Bible and other places, and I suppose that's so we don't hurt feelings that some have been left out. But we don't need to worry about that when we read the scriptures. 
Our version of Scripture does not interchange he and she. And that doesn't mean that there's a sinister plot to put down women by referring to the whole congregation with a masculine word. And so we see this word brethren, and we know that Paul means the women, he means the teenagers, he means the children if they're part of the church. And so he is addressing the entire membership. And when brethren is used in the scripture, the context determines the meaning. And 21 times in this epistle, Paul uses this word brethren. It's a generic reference. And it's important for us to understand that he intends that all of us, all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. That in the church there is a family of believers, and like a family we are to be close. We are to care for one another. Simply, we are brethren. Now like a family, there are some that are not as strong as others. In our church, as in a family, there are some that are not as developed. There are some that are not as mature. And although some are in the church and have been here for many years, they haven't grown as they should. They, they lack spiritual understanding in many things because they haven't grown. And so we have to be careful to consider them and, and to work for the good of all, to meet their spiritual needs. And even at times the Bible teaches that we must meet physical needs. Well, this section, though, is about promoting spiritual growth. In the 12th verse, Paul began with leadership. And part of the growth of the church is the way that we respond to leadership. So we talked about what does a leader do for the people? And then what do the people do for the leader? Well, there's instructions for that in the development of the church. But in these verses today, we're going to continue our discussion of how the congregation is to treat each other. What must we do to grow in grace and thereby we grow the Lord's church? Our first observation in the last message, part number one of of this section, was discipline in the church. Paul said, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Now, if I could return to leadership for just a moment, in verse number 13, the apostle said, esteem the leadership, respect the leadership, because God put rulers over you. Leadership is appointed for your good. Now, he used this word unruly, unruly, to define problem people that are in the church. The original word means insubordinate. It's a, it's a military term for a soldier that breaks ranks. And there are some in the church that would disrupt the fellowship because they just never get with the program. They just can't get along with others to work as a team. So they never think of anybody but self. They never consider anyone but uh, uh, and their opinions. They don't do things for the good of others. My dad used to describe these kinds of people as being out of kilter. They're out of line. They're insubordinate. They refuse to be led, and so they disrupt church work. Paul said, warn them. And we need to be ready to take disciplinary action when we see this. We can't suffer too long in the church with troublemakers. And so we begin with a sanctified correction of these people. And understand when we say discipline, the word is not a harsh word because it simply means to disciple. It means to teach people and help them to learn to act in a godly way. And so we're to work with these kinds of people, the the ones that are obstinate and stubborn, the ones that can't get with the program. We work with them and try to assimilate them into a working membership and to be productive members. We want them to be useful. 
And so we hope that as we come alongside them and with gentle correction that they will see what they should do and they surrender to and submit to authority. So we hope that they grow and surrender. Sometimes that just doesn't happen. Sometimes the general approach doesn't work. And so the Bible says that we need to step up the discipline and it might even be, it might even be necessary to remove that person from the body of Christ. Now, it's not my purpose today to speak to you about all forms of discipline in the church. But I do want to remind you, when discipline becomes this severe, that we must remove someone from church membership, that, that removal is for the good of the church, and it's for the good of the individual. Because that helps us to understand how serious this matter is, how serious sin is. We can't let sin go on in the church. Because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is at stake. And there's not a single person in the church that is above the entire church. So Paul starts out, warn them. It's a word that means to admonish. There's no harshness in it. It's a word, or it doesn't mean to kick them to the curb. It doesn't mean step on them. It doesn't mean trample them. It just means gently try to correct them. So we remember the critical rules of discipline that we learned last time. That is, we are to live under the rule of love. And we are to live under the rule of confession and to live under the rule of forgiveness. Love one another. Confess your faults to one another. And be forgiving of one another. And we talked about those things last week. So we're going to move on today with two more observations on this text. Next, I'd like to talk to you about discouragement in the church. Uh, you can well imagine from what we know of the Roman Empire and the hostility that it had towards Christianity that there was much discouragement in this church that Paul writes to. The environment simply was not good. There's paganism everywhere. There's persecution because of hatred of Jesus Christ and of the church. But these were people that had been saved out of an immoral lifestyle and really from a, a decadent, indecent religion. They're saved from a system that worshipped many gods and self-indulgence of the worst kinds. They were saved to worship the unknown God. Or at least that's what they called him in Athens, if you remember. They called Paul's God the unknown God. And certainly he was unknown to these pagans in the Roman Empire. Everything that they'd learned about Christianity when Paul taught them was antithetical to their worldview. Their persecution from, uh, for worshiping a strange God that they knew nothing about encouraged some of them to be unruly. And so there were some of them that just didn't fit in. That was hard for them to submit to the authority of Christian leadership. They believed, but they hadn't yet developed. And they were very discouraged by everything going on around. And it was difficult for them to get with the program. And that's also a modern church problem. We, we face the very same things today. A Brian Baptist church, I think we would all say, is countercultural. We're not like other people around us. We're not like other churches around us. And many times, we're even different from those who say that they are Christians. Because so many churches today ignore the Bible. But we don't. We believe that the Bible is to be, be, be honored and obeyed. No matter how contrary things that you read in the Bible may be to things that go on in the world today, we're still to honor the Word of God and forsake contemporary thinking. See, we refuse to believe that the Bible is not for modern Christians. 
We believe it's always fresh. We believe it applies to every generation because as this word said, it lives and abides forever. Not one word of our Bible will fail or needs to be changed. Now Paul here introduces two types of discouraged people. These aren't the undisciplined that we read in the first part of the verse. They're not unruly. They're just people that have been beaten down. They can't get over the nagging issues that keep them from being sanctified and living for Christ. Now it's plain that there are those in the church whose spiritual growth has been stunted. There are sinful factors in their life. They have difficulty getting rid of sin in their lives. So sins keep plaguing them. They continually fall back into them time and time again. They don't have any victory over Satan's temptations. And so it makes them miserable internally and externally. Now the first of these problematic people Paul describes as the feeble-minded. He said, comfort the feeble-minded. These aren't people with dementia. That's not what he means. But rather, we would call these people who are perplexed. Now, it doesn't escape me that after warning the unruly, that Paul says, comfort the feeble-minded. Now, in the first, as he talked about the unruly, there, there may be a sense of scolding the insubordinate. But here we have consoling for the despondent. It's not good to treat the discouraged in a way that drives them only deeper into their despondency. So these are people that need to be comforted and consoled and, and encouraged and loved because with great difficulty, these are Christians that are just struggling to overcome their problems. The feeble-minded are those who can't see Christ because there's a mountain of problems in front of them. They can't see Christ because this, this is obstructing the view all of the time and they just don't have the strength to climb over all of these problems. And so they see this hard journey of the Christian life that's been set before them. And they hear what the apostle says and, and, and it talks to them about how you should live and what you should do. And, and they look at that and they say, how can I do that? I just can't make it. I can't live like that. And they don't understand why becoming a Christian has not solved all of life's problems. They thought that this is what Christianity does. You believe in Jesus Christ and then suddenly all your problems are gone. So they wonder, why do God's people suffer? Why is there so much trouble? And they haven't learned what the Apostle Paul taught, that God designs suffering to strengthen his people. He says, you will go through suffering, and God is always able there to help. So they wonder then, why didn't God deliver them from their present persecution? Why didn't he take away all those temptations of Satan when they first came to Christ? Now the text, the text indicates there are many problems. They have financial problems. In the second letter, Paul addressed those who, through their bad choices, uh, tried to feed off the hard-working class of the church. There were family problems. And this often happens when one family member is saved and others in the family aren't. I've seen this happen when families that are traditionally Roman Catholic and then one gets saved and then the rest of the family treats them like outcasts. It might be job problems. They're stuck at a dead-end job and they feel the pressure of it. They can't be content because all the time they've expected that Christianity would be what it is not. And the real problem is they're too much into the present. 
They're looking at things going on now and all the problems that they have now and they're worried about the success that they have today and they never see that Christianity is something that's lived for the future. That everything that we do today has a view towards eternity and the exceedingly long-term rewards of being in Christ, being with Christ in heaven. And then you have some that are like today's Christians that watch too much TV And what they've seen on TV are the prosperity preachers, the religious hucksters that teach them that to be a Christian means that you will be delivered from all suffering. And and they tell them, you will receive material rewards, you will be rich in everything that the world offers. And so they're feeble-minded because they're confused. They follow preachers that are Amway salesmen. And so they listen to this prosperity gospel which I don't have time to deal with today, I can only warn you that prosperity preachers trample on the Bible and destroy it. The Bible knows nothing of what they preach. These are people that are truly, literally, and physically persecuted, and it was hard for them to hold on. And I think as we look at that and the problems that they have, we might be just a little bit too smug at times and not really understand how hard this is for people. We want to treat them harshly. They were feeble-minded. It's a word that means small-souled. It's being afraid to tackle the big issues. Now, thank God there are some in the church that are the opposite. Thank God there are some that are large-souled. They believe that the cause is so great, the principles are so substantial, the need is so urgent, they're willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. Some of you heard our discussion a few weeks ago in the forum class, and we were talking about our missionary Wilson Mongo in Africa. Now there is a man who is large-souled. That's a man who pushes himself for the cause of Christ. He deals with people every day that are the opposite of him. And he moves a lot of small-souled people into the other category. Paul was a large-souled type. And all the apostles were that way because they had seen the resurrected Lord. They put their lives on the line for the cause. And so they put the world behind them. Paul's mantra was theirs. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So in the end of his life, Paul faced the executioner with strong faith. He faced death with resolve. He said that death is gain. Now the prosperity preacher says that this world is gain. Paul said the next world is gain. And so that's what he gave everything for. And if you look at the life of Paul, he's not that person without troubles. No, here is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the will of God. And yet we find him shipwrecked. We see him beaten. He is stoned. He's imprisoned. He's imperiled in this world. And yet still pressing on for Christ to be with him in the next. And that's what it means to be large soul. But these Christians in verse 14 aren't that. They wouldn't push faith to the edge. They were afraid to step out. And they didn't see that faith is that unseen ledge that holds you up when you step into the unknown. It's the evidence of things not seen. And this is what every Christian needs to learn, that God is there. God is always there. God always sustains. He says you can go forward and God guarantees success because in his word he said everything works together for good, to those who love the Lord and belong to Him. Now you go back to chapter 3 and verse number 10, 
Paul wanted to return to Thessalonica to, to perfect their faith. What does he mean by that? Well, some of them lacked faith. Oh, true, they had saving faith, but they lacked a living faith. They hadn't learned to live and the faith, in the faith and become conquerors for Christ. And so weak faith had left them defeated and discouraged. So I think that a word that we could use for them is worried. They were always worried. They're anxious and pessimistic. They're perplexed by all life's problems because they can't solve them. So they're pessimistic about Christianity. How, how is this going to work out for me? And folks, let me tell you, you can't grow like that. You're not going to become Paul like that. Jesus said, worry will do nothing for you. It can't help you. It never does anything. All it does is, is drag tomorrow's problems into today where for sure you can't solve them. God wants us to trust and not to worry. God wants you to know that he's always in control. He wants you to know that his providence rules. Nothing will happen to you that is not in his plan. You can't make his plan better or worse. You can't change it. All you can do is surrender to it because it's best. Your way can never be any better. So why worry about trying to make it better? Now you don't always understand where God's going. Only God knows that. God knows it. He planned it before you were ever born. He, he planned it before the world was created. You only need to follow his leading today. Peter wrote, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I think about that verse when I hear people talk about how hard it is to live in California. I concede it's hard. But I also concede that God is able. What happens if all Christians in California think, it's, well, it's just too hard to live here. So all Christians leave California. That just leaves me to convert all these pagans. So what am I going to do? Well, we can't do that. We have to depend upon God. We, uh, uh, and think about this. Are we in a good church? I hope the answer is yes. Are we being taught the word of God? I hope the answer is yes. Are we into the temporal or the eternal? I hope the answer is the eternal. So let's not be feeble-minded. Let's not be small-souled. Regard the cause greater than you, the individual, because the church together is greater than the collection of individual members. As a church, it's, it's great with the collection of individual members. Now, one more comment on this. Some are afraid to take one more step beyond what we've already done. I mean, as a church, you know, we, we, we look at what we do as a church and we think, well, th this is just the way we have to be. We've got to stay this way. And some people get stuck in the nostalgia of 1970s church or 1980s church or way back in 1990s church. And if the church can't be exactly what it was then, then it can't be godly. Now, I'm not talking about switching the church to an irreverent rock and roll church. And I'm not speaking of abandoning godly expository preaching for feel-good sermons. I'm just saying there's not a need to be stuck in the rut of the past. When you think about it, there's not a single person here that would enjoy doing church like they did in 1650. 
Now, I think of Charles Spurgeon's church in, in England. It's still in existence, and it started way back 350 years ago, back in the time of John Gill and before that. 350 years ago. Do you imagine that that church is still doing church like they did in 1650? Well, no. So we've got to decide, well, how do we get to where we are today? And, and we still have the truth, don't we? We still have the church of Jesus Christ, don't we? So how can we have those things if we still need to be tied to the 17th century? We don't have to be. What we need to do is to step out in faith and say, what can we do to be encouraged, sanctified people living in the 21st century? Now let me go on. I want to finish uh, these two verses today. The second type of church problem members are those people who are powerless. Paul said, comfort the feeble-minded. Then next he says, support the weak. Support means to help, of course. Pay attention to them. Uphold them when they have need. The weak are those that are without strength. It means they are powerless. These are people that have no power. And the church has powerless people. What kind of weaknesses do they have? Well, sometimes weak can refer to physical weakness. So we could include the sick, those that are weak that way. James said, if you're sick, then what you need to do is call the elders to come and pray over you. Pray for the sick. And you need to ask yourself that. Do you pray for sick people? Do you visit sick people? But the context of this verse is not so much speaking of people in a physical weakness, but rather in spiritual weakness. And this is brought about by the persecution they live under. And so there is a, a temptation among these people to return to their worldly lifestyles, to worshiping idols. They can't overcome the idols. And this makes it especially sad when there are ministries that make money an idol. Greed is surely a form of idolatry. And you remember 1 Corinthians that Paul told the church to, uh, uh, about eating meat offered to idols. And he said, there's some weak Christians among you that just won't understand it. If you do that, they will be offended. And I think probably, though, it's best for us to tie Paul's thought here back to what he says in chapter 4. Now, if you look at verses 2 through 4 in the fourth chapter, Paul said, For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. I think he's mostly referring to those who are tempted to fall back into their alluring, immoral lifestyles that accompanied pagan worship. And this was characteristic of it. Fornication, sexual promiscuity, that was a part of their worship. And I explained that as we studied chapter 4, so I won't uh, go into it here. But sexual sins, you'll find that these are always at the top of the list when Paul discussed sanctification. It's the most alluring, the most damaging sin to our holiness. And you know, it's the most prevalent types of sin in America today. Satan uses this to infiltrate the church. The mind constantly struggles against the lust of the flesh. Our minds get filled up with that and we can never claim victory over it. And so our churches, even the, the pulpit, suffers with these addictions. You'll find that preachers suffer to addictions to pornography. The, the words that Paul used in this passage are the very same from which we get pornography. And that's this voracious, consuming appetite that's not easily conquered. 
So Paul preaches against it. And he said, that can't be a part of the church. If you expect to experience spiritual growth, you can't have it with that kind of mindset. Now you see how it relates to the subject of living uh, in the light of Christ's return in verse number 23 of the fifth chapter. He says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you live knowing that Christ will return? Christ is coming, so will he find us living in immorality? Will he find us satisfying those lusts of the flesh? And yet, tell me where you find a church today that preaches about sexual immorality. How many services have you listened to where preachers get into this any longer? Oh no, you can be a member of a church today and have a live-in boyfriend or a girlfriend. You can work in the church on Sunday after having sex with whomever you please on Saturday. The church says, that's okay, it asks no questions. And then, do I really need to go into the churches that proudly display a rainbow on their church signs? This is the very type of immorality that Paul discussed in multiple scriptures. We can't walk with the world and expect to develop strong, spiritual, godly churches. Oh, we can grow numerically by inviting all of that in, and surely we would, but we won't grow spiritually. It can't happen. And this might surprise you too that it is also possible to be ultra-conservative rather than being strong in the faith. Because of it, being ultra-conservative, you actually become weaker in the faith because of it. Why? Well, because you don't understand Christian liberty. And so, so multiple enforced rules are used to manufacture sanctification and people don't develop a deep faith through that. They depend on their flesh to make them better, not the Holy Spirit. So churches that consume themselves with a list of rules to be obeyed, they legislate sanctification without considering the heart. They have faith in their rule books and they have faith in preachers that enforce them. And these are people that rarely develop a heart for the Lord. They don't develop a heart for people either. And you see it when somebody crosses the rule book. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago with Julie and, and Lino. Uh, now, hear me out. Um, Lino's a fine Christian man, I'll say that. Julie was telling us in our Sunday school class that a preacher asked if Lino was a new Christian. And you, there you can substitute a weak Christian. You know why? Because he came to church without a suit on Sunday. Is that what makes a church or make a person rather a strong Christian? See, these are people that are super sensitive to rules and rarely sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They're more the judges of Christian character than God himself. So what do we do with the powerless, the ones who fall into temptation? Well, we help them. We counsel them. We try to bring them along. They need to know where they stand in Christ. And they need to know if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit works in them as much as he does a preacher or any of you. They have the Holy Spirit in them. And the big fallacy that they've been taught in all this rules construction is that Christ loves me better if I do this and loves me worse or less if I do that. And if it's the rules, church, that causes them to think that way and consider Christianity that way, it breeds insecurity. There is no assurance for a person who believes that Christ loves me better today because I wore a suit 
And he'll love me less tomorrow because I wear a polo shirt. Yes, we are to be sanctified. But the Holy Spirit is the one who does it, not us. Now verse 14 ends with, be patient toward all men. Now you'll notice in our King James Version, the translators added men. I'll, I'll comment on that once again to soothe the hurt feelings of feminists. Be patient towards all that suffices. Be patient towards all members of the church. I confess, patience is one of the hardest things that I deal with. I have a hard time with patience. I would rather choke some people and just be done with it. Uh, I mean, there, there are some ideas that pass my desk that I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. What, what, what are you thinking? But I, but I suffer through that because I know I can't just jump across the desk and choke somebody. Folks, church people do stupid stuff. Did you know that? I don't know where it comes from. Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. But Solomon was not a member of a Baptist church. So people, people try your patience, but you can't kill them. You've got to live with them. You've got to help them. Patience means long-suffering. Opposite from being short-tempered. It keeps us from lashing out, getting angry, and not responding to the rule of love. And all of that's predicated upon the way that Christ treats us. He is long-suffering. I mean, think about it. We keep doing the same blockhead stuff over and over. It's just it's every day, it seems like. And what does Christ do? He forgives. His wells of grace are overflowing, so he has plenty to pour out on us when we sin against him. God simply waits on our repentance and faith, and he leads us into contrition over sin. Oh, if only we would be as patient as God is patient, then we'd suffer with much less strife. Well, let's look at verse number 15. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, thirdly, I'd like to talk to you about deportment in the church. The word simply means behavior. Deportment is behavior. Now, though you try to comfort people, and despite your support and with all gracious patience that you can muster, there are still those in the church who will hurt you. Many people are surprised that there are people in the church that will hurt them. Oh, they're sure the church is a place of peace and safety. And I'll tell you that it should be. But a church is made up of sinners. Church is made up of imperfect people. And Satan is always attacking God's people. And not all of us are attuned to Christ as we should be. And so there's hurt. And when that happens in the church, people are disillusioned by the hurt. But you can't find a perfect church. It doesn't exist and it won't until we get to heaven. So we're sinners, and sin often gets in our way. It gets the best of us. And so we see people that we think would never fall. They're so strong, they'll never fall, but they do. And sometimes those people hurt us. And we treat the whole situation as if the church as a whole or God is at fault. God is not at fault because of sin. We're the ones that sin. So I'll tell you, sometimes you do get hurt in the church. Now, we looked at Matthew 18 last time, and we saw proper procedures that need to be used when someone hurts you. Well, let me just add a few things to that discussion as we end today. We're never to respond with retaliation. It's not ours to seek vengeance. We're not even capable of of proper judgment when we're in retaliatory mode. 
We are to leave retribution to the Lord. Paul said, don't repay evil with evil. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is societal, governmental justice. That is not personal justice. And so when someone hurts us, we are to pursue reconciliation. And reconciliation doesn't happen until we strive to respond in the same way that Christ does towards us. We always do good because Christ always did the right thing. Evil for evil, that's the world's way. It's not ours. Now let me show you something. Several weeks ago, I wrote a bulletin article about how we treat others in the church. The title was, How We Treat the Church is How We Treat Christ. Now neither the title nor the article were entirely original. The gist of the article is that the treatment of God's people is tantamount to the treatment of Christ. But rather than discussing it from a person-to-person issue, the article was geared towards what we do as Christians when we neglect the church. To neglect the church is to neglect Christ. Let me read a few lines and I'll repeat these for you. I quote from this article. When we have no interest in serving and caring for the Lord's people... We are failing to care for the Lord. When we drop the ball on stuff in church and put upon others, we're spurning the Lord and saying there are other things that take precedence over Him. How we treat the church is how we treat Christ. If we never go to church, if we constantly go away for the weekend, if we never serve, if we find anything else to do, these are not just holding the church in low esteem, it is treating Christ lightly. And it's a direct reflection on our view of him. Oh, you hear that, and the first thing that comes into your mind is an excuse. Well, I would ask you, when you stand before God in the judgment, how are you going to answer when God asks about this? If Christ returns on a Sunday, are you going to be worshiping him? Will you be in your usual place in his body that is the church? And then finally, the connection between how we treat the church and how we treat Christ is not just a corporate measure. The church is made up of individuals. Now, I've talked about suppressing individuality, but that doesn't mean we're not made of individuals. How do you treat the membership of the body? How you treat the individuals in the church is how you treat Christ. So how can you do evil without doing evil to Christ? And Jesus said, whenever you hurt the least of these... You do it to me. And he said, if you treat a child of his wrongfully, if you offend one of his little ones, you know what he said? It's better for you if they tied a millstone around your neck and cast you into the sea. Now, Paul was a little gentler than Jesus was. That's Jesus who said that. Paul said, follow that which is good. Do the right thing. Act that way towards all people. Now, folks, this is the fellowship of the church. How does the church grow? What is our sanctification? Well, here's two prongs of it. We get another one next week. Two prongs of it. Respond properly to leadership. And that is God's people reside in fellowship. Now next we're going to continue with Paul's instructions to the church by discussing how the church rejoices in worship. How do we relate to Christ's lordship? So let me ask you, as we finish, what do you think of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, What is your part in helping this church grow 
spiritually as we wait on the Lord to return. Now you need to consider the question very carefully because it does this. It measures your personal growth in the faith of Jesus Christ. I began by saying I'm a church man. I am a church man. I believe in the responsibility of the church because the Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How many of us are going to give ourselves for our church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the blessing of church membership. We thank you for the fellowship of your people because in this assembly, as we listen to the word of God, we grow stronger. We, we learn to depend on you through dependence upon others that are modeling Christ in their lives. Lord, help us to be that, that kind of a Christian who treats the church well because how we treat it is how we treat you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and, and giving us the word that we can learn to, to grow closer to you and receive all the blessings and benefit, benefits that come by knowing you as Savior. Help us today, Lord, to take these words and use them in a way that will honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.